Would you turn please to the 25th Psalm, Psalm 25. I want to add my own expression of love for the uh, pedicords to what uh, Chris and Harden said earlier. Um, Carolyn and I have a deep appreciation for uh, these four. Uh, I've always been touched by their uh, love for the Word, their uh, commitment to Christ, and their vision. Um, Clark and Ann always, uh, they, they have what the Old Testament, uh, or what the Scriptures refer to as the gift of faith, and they're a delight to be around. They always uh, blow the doors right out of my mind. They have uh, vision and concepts of what God is capable of doing that far exceed anything I could ever think or imagine or dream. And uh, it's just good to have them around. They stretch my faith. And we're going to miss them greatly. Clark uh, forgot to mention, I believe, Tuesday night, this coming Tuesday night, he'll be showing again uh, some pictures of their ministry and explaining uh, that effort a bit more. Uh, That's Tuesday night at 7.30 in the fireside room. For those of you that have not had an opportunity yet to uh, to hear more about OJC and Comenius College and what the pedicords will be doing there. Now let's take a look at uh, Psalm 25. Uh, this uh, this particular psalm does not have a title, so we're not uh, absolutely sure when it was written, though it's generally agreed that it was written during the time when David was, uh, as he described it, hunted like a partridge in the wilderness. Uh, Saul and his henchmen were chasing him from pillar to post. Uh, He was awash in uncertainty, uh, danger, ambiguity. Uh, There were no uh, signs, no landmarks, uh, no milestones. He'd never been through this part of the wilderness before. This was a a new experience uh, for him. Yogi Berra says, when you come to a fork in the road, take it. Uh, that was the kind of uh, blurry-minded ambiguity that uh, David was was faced with. What he needed was fatherly counsel. Uh, needed a discerning guide, as we do. If you recall the passage that Ron taught for us some weeks ago, First Samuel 23, there were two or three references there to the fact that David inquired of the Lord, that term inquire or ask is the theme of, of that chapter. Uh, David inquired of the Lord, saying, shall I go and attack these Philistines? And the Lord answered him and said, go and deliver Calah. Once again, David inquired of the Lord and the Lord answered him. Go down to Calah, he said, for I'm going to give the Philistines into your hand. And then a bit later in chapter 30, when David was faced with another uh, difficult decision. He inquired of the Lord, shall I pursue this raiding party? Will I overtake them? The answer came, pursue them. You'll certainly overtake them and succeed in in the rescue. One of the startling things about those statements is that they are placed in contrast to Saul who repeatedly asked and uh, got no answers. We're told that Saul inquired of the Lord, but the Lord did not answer him by dreams or Urim or Thummim or by the prophets. So uh, 
it's possible to be guided by God and it's possible to be ignored. So the question is, uh, how, how can we get in on God's wise uh, counsel? How do we bring His shrewdness and discrimination into our decisions? Life is very uncertain. We have the same ambiguities, same gut level and uncertainties that, uh, that David experienced. How do we understand what God wants us to do? How do we answer that age-old question? How can I know the will of God? That's a question that's haunted the human race for thousands of years. They would go to the oracles, try to find some word from God. They go to the fortune tellers, to the pagan prophets of that of that era, and uh, try to discern the future. There's an old uh, Chinese proverb that says it's it's impossible to prophesy, especially with regard to the future. And uh, we face that uncertainty every day. Uh, how are we going to make our way through life without uh, cracking up on the rocks, without without destroying ourselves? Uh, Psalm 25 is uh, one place to begin. Uh, the psalm uh, organizes itself around three movements, prayer and then instruction and prayer. David prays and then he takes on the mode of a teacher, he instructs us, and then he goes back again to prayer. It's one of those acrostic psalms, alphabetical psalms. I mentioned before that some of, the, of Israel's poets uh, use uh, the alphabet, the Hebrew alphabet, as a mnemonic device. Each new verse of the poem is uh, begins with a letter of the alphabet in, sequ- in sequence. Aleph, Beth, Gimel, Daleth, and so forth. It's like our ABCs. Uh, the psalm is like that. It's an alphabetical psalm. I think of it as the ABCs of discerning the will of God. It's the, element, uh, the elements, the first things, the fundamentals, the basics. Had an opportunity to sit on sit in on one of Bobby Dye's practices last uh, week, two weeks ago, with my son, uh, who is a basketball coach over in Washington, high school basketball coach. And uh, Brian informed me. I, I know very little about basketball; it's like cricket to me. And, uh, he was uh, had this wonderful opportunity to be instructed by my son. And one of the things that he told me is that uh, Coach Dye spent better than half of his time just working on the basics, fundamentals. And I thought, uh, that's good coaching. That's the way we ought to live our lives, back again and again and again to the first things, the elementary things. And this is a psalm that deals with those uh, first issues. Let me begin by reading the first uh, three verses. To you, O Lord, I lift up my soul. In you I trust, O my God. Do not let me be put to shame. Nor let my enemies triumph over me. Indeed, no one who waits for you will ever be put to shame, but they will be put to shame who are treacherous, without excuse, without cause. The word for treacherous here is a word that's used uh, throughout the Old Testament for those that are unfaithful to the covenant. It's used uh, in, in, uh, uh, in the first five books of the Bible for marital infidelity. Uh, Failure to be faithful to one's loved one. The covenant in Israel is simply this. I'll be your God, you be my people. It's just that simple. It's the covenant that we have with God. Commit ourselves to him and he commits ourselves to us. I'll be your God, 
Uh, you be my people. It's always been true of God-fearing people. To be treacherous is to uh, be unfaithful to that covenant. David says those that uh, put their trust in God will never be embarrassed. They'll never be put to shame. They'll never be let down. But those that uh, are unfaithful to the covenant are likely to be let down. As Saul was. He utterly ignored. I mentioned before that uh, uh, the Hebrew poets used parallelism. They rhymed thoughts rather than uh, sounds. We like uh, assonance in our, our poetry. We like the, the notion of repeated sounds, rhyme. Uh, Mary had a little lamb. Her father shot it dead. Now Mary takes the lamb to school between two hunks of bread. <laughs> we like that. That's, uh, that's poetry to us. Sounds good to our ears. Uh, Hebrews had a better idea. They rhymed ideas. Statement. Repeated statement in which uh, in the second line, the, the first line is elaborated, explicated, explained, enhanced, enlarged. That's what you have in verse 1. In thee, O Lord, I lift up my soul. O my God, in thee I trust. You understand what David is saying? Uh, he lifts up his soul. The soul represents the personality. It's what David is. It's his life. So I lift my life up to you. In you I trust. In other words, I entrust myself to you. See, that's the beginning point to make ourselves available to God. I've often said the only people that uh, don't discern God's will are people that don't want it. If you want it, you'll receive it. And the first step is uh, just presenting ourselves in humble submission before the Lord. Here's my life. Take it, Lord. Whatever you want to do with it, I'm available. I saw a sign one day on a panel truck uh, traveling through the streets of Palo Alto, California. It read, it was a moving van, it read, any load... Any distance, any direction, any place, any time. And I thought that's a good statement of what it means to present ourselves before the face of God in humble submission. Any load, any distance, any place, any direction, any time. I'm available. That's what David does. I lift up my soul, my life to you. Here, take it out of my hands. I don't want control of it. Life is a hazardous occupation. You never know what's going to happen around the next corner. So I entrust my life to you. You know, you and I are inclined to think of the, you know, the big decisions are education, location, vocation, and matrimony. Where we're going to go to school, where we're going to live, who we're going to marry, where we're going to work. Those are the biggies. Those are the ones that we concentrate our prayer life on. Those are the big concerns of life. When in fact, some of the biggest decisions we ever make are the almost unconscious decisions that we make day after day after day. The biggest decision you ever make in your life may be the decision to turn left rather than right as you go out of the parking lot because you may, in the intersection, encounter some fellow that runs a red light and it could alter your life forever. Life is that dangerous. It's that tenuous. We never know what's going to happen. To us, We cannot control our circumstances. One of the biggest decisions I ever made in my life was to wear a pair of floppy old loafers rather than Adidas. 
Uh, I got up one morning, going to have a staff meeting, and I did, I just pulled on a pair of old loafers that were comfortable and wore them to the meeting. Afterwards, we went out to Winstead Park to play football, and we're just running around throwing a ball around. I stepped on a sprinkler head and, and blew my knee out, and it changed my whole life. My life up to that point had been, been centered, at least to some extent, around physical things. It's what I love to do, and it was the end of that. So I look back on that and I say, that, that was a huge decision to wear those loafers that day. It changed my whole life. Well, life's like that. It's full of those ambiguities and uncertainties, and complications, and complexity. It's dangerous out there. You never know what's going to happen next. And so the only thing we can do is entrust ourselves to God. And David says with great confidence, those who put their lives in God's hands will not be disappointed. He never lets them down. The wise man says, Trust the Lord with all your heart and lean not to your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge Him and He will direct your paths. Every morning, the Lord whispers in your ear, Come follow me. That's a once for all thing. It's an everyday thing. We roll out of the sack. And we say, okay, Lord, I'm with you. Like a, like a shepherd, lead me. Gentle shepherd, lead me. Any load, any distance, any place, anywhere, anytime. I'm yours. I'm going to follow you through the day. Trust your wise judgment, your fatherly counsel, your guidance. Count on you to nudge me in the right direction. I believe that your goodness and love will follow me all the days of my life. You'll never let me down. You'll never let me be ashamed. I can entrust myself to you because you're, you're good. Now, one, uh, one necessary correlation, I think, of uh, entrusting ourselves to God is, is a humble submission to His will. It's one thing to believe that He's good. It's another thing to believe that He's loving. It's quite another thing to, to put ourselves in His hands. I think we have to know that He's good. And we have to know that He loves us every day of our lives. But then the next step is to make ourselves available to God and make the decision to go His way. Now, there's a wonderful interchange uh, between the Cheshire Cat and Alice in Alice in Wonderland. Alice is at the crossroads. You may remember the incident. and She didn't know which way to go. She said to the cat, Would you tell me, please, which way I ought to go from here? Cat says that depends a great deal on where you want to go, where you want to get to. Alice says, I don't care much. And it doesn't matter which way you go, the cat replies. It's very important that we decide at the very beginning which way we want to go. Do we want to go our way or God's way? C.S. Lewis says there are only two options in life. We either say, my will be done or thy will be done. David, our Lord, were two of the latter when facing uh, some tough choices, difficult circumstances. They were willing to say, your will be done. The question is this, do I want to go God's way? Uh, Frank Buckman says, make God the final authority. Not merely to say with our lips, but with the discipline of the heart. Okay. 
Any load, any distance, any place, any time, any direction. Here's my life, Lord. We present ourselves in humble submission before the face of God. Jesus' sayings sometimes are difficult to understand. He had a way of uh, speaking enigmatically and makes us think. We have to stop and ponder what he's saying. He said at one point, If the eye is single, then the whole body will be full of light. If the eye is dual, how great is that darkness? Now what he meant is this. If the eye is single, if it's focused on God's will and His desire for us, then our, our minds will be full of light. We will know what God wants us to do. But if the eye is dual, you know, crossed, evil is the way it's translated in the the, uh, King James, the old authorized version. The eye is evil or dual. How great is that darkness? You see, if we don't don't want God's way, He won't bother us with it. It just becomes heavy and onerous and difficult. In that... uh, Analogy he used, you know, you don't cast pearls before swine. The point is you don't give people precious things that, that they will trample underfoot because truth unlived always brutalizes us, always makes us worse off than we were before. So if we don't want God's eye, if we don't God, want God's will, if our, we got one eye on our will and one eye on His will and we can't decide which way we're going to go, then He just doesn't bother us. With this, with his will, it would be too much for us. Some years ago, I uh, wrote something in in my journal. I'd like to read just a part of it to you. We Christians sometimes do the oddest and most orthodox things. Certainly we have orthodox plans and prepare in ordinary ways and harbor our dreams like others, but we must hold our schemes and schedules loosely, giving God the right to chart and change our course. This means that we will never know what will happen to us next. We'll always be out of control, living with uncertainty, giving up the security of our own plans, existing in a world where God's will is the only sure thing. But God's will means that every one of our moments is managed by Him. Our course is His business, not ours. That takes onus off of us. We don't have to find the way. The problem is not ours to discover the will of God. The problem, if I can put it that way, is His to reveal it. All we have to do is want it. Our course is His business, not ours. Our task is to submit ourselves humbly before the face of God. His task is to get us to the right place at the right time, to do the right thing. Keeping that perspective keeps us on course. If we trust Him with all our heart and acknowledge Him in all our ways, we're assured that He'll direct our paths. Those who do not want God's will miss it, but the one who is firmly settled upon upon this, whatever God tells me, God helping me, I'm going to do it will not be left in doubt as to what God wishes him to do. It's a quote from uh, Alexander uh, McLaren. And in the end, our course will be clear. Looking back, we'll see all the pieces and puzzles of our life as part of a coherent whole and declare with Paul, I have finished the course. The course, which must be lived in prospect, can only be understood in retrospect. Thus God sanctifies our memories. As we look back over the path 
of past obedience, we see what he's been doing with us all along. Now, what I'm saying by that is that we don't know God's will in prospect. All we can do is keep our eyes on him. As Israel had to keep its eyes on the cloud by day and the pillar of fire by night. And we leave the process up to him. We let him take the consequences. We just follow him. And at some point in our life, we'll be able to look back and say, oh, that was the will of God for me. That's what he wanted me to do. See, the essential thing is, is, is that trust and that submission to him. Now, Paul argues the same way in Romans 12.1. He writes, I urge you, brothers, in view of God's mercy, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable to God, which is a reasonable act of worship. It's the only act of worship that makes any sense, is to present ourselves before the face of God in humble submission. You know, be conformed to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you will prove out an experience. What is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God? Do you understand what he's saying? The only way to know in your experience the perfect and acceptable will of God is to present yourself before him. To say, here I am, any load, any distance, any time, any place, any direction. I'm yours. Here's my life. And once we entrust ourselves to him, then he can give us the guidance that we desire. Now, this does not mean that he will lead us necessarily into earthly good. It's not what Paul means when he says that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. You saw the Shadowlands. <clears throat> you recall that, uh, that uh, I, I have not seen it myself, but someone told me about the one segment where Lewis is lecturing. And he said, God's will is not to make us happy. It's to make us grown up. What he meant is that it's not God's primary desire to see us healthy, wealthy, and wise in terms of this world's goods and wisdom. He has a greater goal in mind, which is to make us like himself, to conform us to his image. Paul says that everything God does works together for good, but not earthly good. Good is confirmation of our character to the, the character of Christ to make us more loving, to make us more gentle, to make us more tough-minded, to make us more uh, non-defensive, to make us more peaceful, gentle, strong. Right? wants us to grow up, be full-grown uh, children in the family. The outcome is not happiness here. And, and what that means is that God may take us down a path where present comfort eludes us so he can give us everlasting consolation, as Paul says. I came across a wonderful little poem by uh, uh, George MacDonald a few weeks ago. Uh, he writes, He chose this path for me, though well he knew that thorns would pierce my feet. Knew how the brambles would obstruct the way. Knew all the hidden dangers I would meet. Knew how my faith would falter day by day. And still my whisper echoes, Yes, I see this path is best for me. He chose this path for me. Why need I more? This better truth to know than all along these strange bewildering, bewildering ways or rocky steeps where dark rivers flow. His mighty arm will bear me all my days, a few steps more, and I shall see. 
this path is best for me. We we uh, need to understand what God is about. We pray that God will give us wisdom to marry the right person and we find ourselves locked into a relationship that's very, very hard, difficult, hard to stay with. We make a decision to leave one location where we're comfortably settled in and go to another community and start a business and the business goes bankrupt and everything falls apart. Or we pray about having elective surgery and the surgery ends up far worse than we ever anticipated and we somehow have missed the way. But we have to understand that God has greater things in mind than our earthly joy. He wants to fill us with heavenly comfort. He wants us to grow up to full maturity. He wants us to be mature men and women. That's the greater thing that, that God is doing. Now that leads me in, in, into the second part of this uh, psalm. And once again, I have run out of time. But uh, let me read uh, verses 4 through 7 to you. Or 4, four and 5. Make me know your ways, O Lord. Teach me your paths. Lead me in your truth and teach me. For you are the God of my salvation. For you I wait all day long. Let me just say this. God's will has primarily to do with morality, not geography, and not our itinerary. We think of God's will in terms of a dot-to-dot journey. Here to here to here to here to here. But that's not the way God looks at it. His primary concern is morality. It's what we are. His primary concern is that we draw near to Him, that we learn to worship Him, that we learn to love Him and give Him devotion, and that we begin to share His life and His righteous character. That's what He's all about. 99 and 99 one-hundredths percent of the will of God is already revealed. It's in the Bible. And I have to wonder about what God wants me to do in terms of uh, His will. It's there. It's revealed. Paul says, this is the will of God. Hear this. This is the will of God, your sanctification, that you abstain from fornication. Period. We need to wonder about God's will in terms of of sexual immorality. He's already specified what His will is. I don't need to wonder about God's will in terms of my marriage. He's told me to stick with it. I don't need to wonder about how what my reaction should be to the difficulties of life, the suffering, the, the energy drains of life. He's told me life will be like this. So I'm to submit to His will in it. Accept it as His hand on mine. I don't have to thank Him for the grief, but I can thank Him for His presence, His goodness, and His love follow me all the days of my life. I don't have to wonder about forgiveness. If I'm harboring an unforgiving heart, it's sinful. That's contrary to the will of God. You see what I'm saying? Most of what God wants is already revealed. I don't need to wonder about it. Peter says in his little epistle, 2 Peter 3, he says, seeing that the world is going to fall apart at the seams, what sort of people should you be? See, that's God's concern. Now, what we do so much is what we are. What God longs for more than anything else is our love and our devotion to Him. He wants our hearts. 
Well, through that contact with him, he begins to change our hearts. That's what he longs for. That's his will. But you say, what about those non-moral decisions? What about where should I go to school? Who should I marry? Those things. I'll tell you the first step. First step is to fill your heart and mind with the Word of God. Okay? Again, because most of what God wants us to know about His will is already revealed. It's there in the form of principles, maxims, axioms, truisms, statements that we can take to heart. Let me read the first uh, verse of uh, the book of Proverbs to you. It's the introduction to the book. So the Proverbs of Solomon, son of David. For attaining wisdom and discipline, for understanding words of insight, for acquiring a disciplined and prudent life, doing what's right and just and fair, these words will give prudence to the simple, knowledge and discretion to the young. Let the wise listen and add to their learning. Let the discerning get guidance. This is a word for the, for the simple. Those that don't know anything about life, those that are likely to blunder through life and blow their lives away. There's a word here for the simpleton, which is the, it's the word for fool. It's used in Proverbs. The untaught, the untutored, the naive. The young man that reads Playboy magazine thinks he knows everything about sex. And the book of Proverbs is, is for him. Give him wisdom. And it's here to make the wise wiser. It's to wise up those that have discernment. How do you get wisdom? Well, you get wisdom. You read about it in God's Word. One practice I would recommend is to read one chapter of the book of Proverbs every day for the rest of your life. Do that in conjunction with the rest of your, of your quiet time. That way you'll read through Proverbs once a month. You'll forget, but the Spirit of God will bring to your mind the truths that you need to know. Plato said most learning is remembering anyway. He's coming from a different place than we are, but to the extent that uh, that's true of us, it, it, it's true. Most of our learning is remembering. The Spirit of God reaches down into our unconscious, pulls out those truths, gives us the wisdom that we need in order to make just and fair and righteous decisions. We know what is good and true and beautiful because God has said so. Uh, John White, in his book, The Fight, says, God does not desire to, to guide us magically. He wants us to know his heart. We need minds so soaked with the content of Scripture, so imbued with biblical outlook and principle, so sensitive to the Holy Spirit's prompting that we will know instinctively the upright step to take in any circumstance, small or great. Therefore, the most important use of Scripture in relation to guidance is that through the study of it, you may become acquainted with the ways and thoughts of God. The Bible contains the thoughts of God. Paul says so when he writes to the Corinthians. It's the way God thinks. This is what he loves. This is what he hates. This is what he wants. This is what he desires. And as we read this book, our thoughts become his thoughts. Jesus was on his way to Jerusalem to die. He'd already predicted that he would die. Disciples thought he'd lost his mind. What are you doing going to Jerusalem? You're playing right into their hands. Jesus said, are there not 12 hours in the day? Those who walk in the light will not stumble. What did he mean? Well, if we walk in the light of God's Word, we're not going to irreparably stumble into, into bad judgment. We're all sinners. We will make mistakes. But if we're walking by the light of God's Word, He cleans up the messes we make. He treats them as though they had never happened. 
we can move on by His grace and His strength and we can make the most of every every decision. You see, what I'm saying is that God does more than give us guidance. He is a guide. There are two ways to give direction in this world. You ask me how to get downtown, I can point down the street and tell you how to get there. Or I can say, well, I'm going there myself, get in the car, I'll take you down there. It's the latter that our Lord does for us. He doesn't just point the direction. He says, I'm going this way, follow me, follow me. Every morning, he wakes us up. He said, my sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. We just rivet our eyes on him, and we start following him. Trusting him. Trusting in his wise bestowal. Trusting in his goodness, and his love, and his mercy. As the psalmist says, I am prayer. As I pointed out a couple of weeks ago, it's just a... Our lives are essentially prayer. Lord, what do I do in this situation? Where, what do I say in this circumstance? How do, how do I live out uh, my life in, in, in this, uh, in this uh, difficult confrontation? And just keep trusting, keep submitting to Him, keep following Him. And when the time comes to make those tough decisions, I cannot tell you how you will know. I can tell you you'll know. You may not know until the time comes to know, but when you have to know, you will know. He'll help you. I don't get anxious about the how. Can't tell you that. I just know that He's uh, He gives good guidance, comes through for us. David said that those who trust in Him will never be embarrassed. He never lets us down, never puts us to shame, never fails to come through. Now, I'm going to leave the rest of the psalm for your perusal. I just want to say that David turns to instruction in verses 8 through 15, and he instructs us two areas. First is humility, and the second is uh, is fear. Good and upright is the Lord, he says in verse 8. Therefore, he instructs sinners in the way. He guides the humble in what is right and teaches them his way. All the ways of the Lord are loving and faithful for those who keep the demands of his of his covenant, those who... Seek with all their heart uh, to follow him. David's answering the question here, how good do you have to be to be guided by God? <laughs> I, I want you to lay hold of that one line. He instructs sinners in the way. We won't get it. We won't get it right all the time. Saul was a sinner and he got no information from God. That's because he didn't want information from God. But if we want it, we'll have it. Even though we stumble, even though we fail. David goes back into his past and in verse 6. He says, Remember, O Lord, your compassion and your love for there from of old. The word for compassion here is the word from which the noun is taken for a mother's womb. Motherly compassion, a tender compassion. He understands our frame. He knows that we're made out of dust. He knows that no one is made out of super dust. We're all made out of the same miserable stuff. He understands. David says, don't remember my sins, you know, of my youth. Most of us, you know, adults are inclined to romanticize youth, but young people don't look at it that way, believe me. I think back on my youth, and it was a perfectly miserable time. 
And most of you could probably say the same thing. That's the time when we we tore down our inhibitions, we desensitized our sin, uh, desensitized our sin, ourselves to sin. Uh, we 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 made miserable use of our strength. We prostituted on ourselves. David says, "Don't remember the sins of my youth." Let me tell you, God does not. He remembers us. That's David's prayer. Remember me. Hey, here I am. I need help. Instruct me. Teach me. Tell me the way that I should go. And he says with uh, with 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 confidence, he instructs sinners in the way. Uh, the other uh, the other pointer here is is fear in this instruction. The other parameter, the other fixed reference point: humility and fear. Now, fear is not craving fear; it's, it's devotion, worship. It's the Old Testament word for religion: submission to God. Devotion, adoration, worship of Him. Taking Him seriously. Again, presenting ourselves before the face of God in in humble submission. Listen to this. Who then is the man that fears the Lord? He will instruct him in the way chosen for him. There's a promise. David is teaching us how to get discernment from God. He will spend his days in prosperity. His descendants will inherit the land. The Lord... Verse 14, confides in those who fear him. That's a wonderful word. It's translated confide in the NIV. It's really the word for secrets in the, in, in the Old Testament. God whispers his secrets in our ears. I said to Abraham, am I going to keep from Abraham the thing that I'm about to do since he's my friend? Absolutely not. And if we have presented ourselves before God in submission to him, we are his friends. And he whispers his secrets in our ears. Clark mentioned Psalm 37. And in that Psalm, David says something about entrusting your way to the Lord and he'll give you the desires of your heart. What is he saying? That God will give you everything your little old uh, selfish heart desires? No, he's not saying that at all. What he's saying is that as we get to know God and we move closer to him, he begins to whisper in our ears his secrets. And those secrets become our desires, the hungers and yearnings of our hearts. They simply replicate his desires for us. We yearn for these things. Don Pettinger, a year or so ago, handed me a quote from Emmett Fox, the Quaker. And I made a copy of it, put it in the front of my notebook. I read it almost every day. Because it uh, speaks so eloquently of of these uh, hidden secret uh, desires that that we have. And with this I'm done. He asks the question, how is one to find his true place in life? Is there any means whereby you may discover what it really is that God wishes you to do? You may feel inclined to say, even if it be true that God has some splendid thing that he wishes me to do and to be, how can I possibly find out what it is? Perhaps you may even be tempted to add, I'm a very plain, ordinary sort of person. My circumstances are extremely restricted. The conditions of my life are just drab, commonplace. How then can there be something wonderful, beautiful, splendid awaiting me? Or even if there were, how could I possibly know it? The answer is divinely simple. Already in your past life, from time to time, God himself has whispered into your heart just that very wonderful thing, whatever it is, that he is wishing you to be and to do and to have. 
And that wonderful thing is nothing less than what is called your heart's desire. Nothing less than that. The most secret, sacred wish. The most secret, sacred wish that lies deep down at the bottom of your heart. That wonderful thing that you hardly dare look at or think about. The thing that you would rather die than have anyone else know of. Because it seems so far beyond anything that you are or have at the present time. That you fear that you would be cruelly ridiculed if the mere thought of it were known. That's the very thing God is wishing you to do or to be for Him. And the birth of that marvelous wish in your soul, the dawning of that secret dream, was the voice of God Himself telling you to arise and come up higher because He has need of you. Do you understand what David is saying in this song? The problem with revealing God's will is very often the problem of our heart. If our hearts are soft, if we are submissive before Him, if we present ourselves a living sacrifice, if we know because, if because we know of His goodness and His love and that His, His care for us is, is constant, we put ourselves in His hands, He will get us to the right place at the right time to do the right thing. The problem becomes his, not ours. That's why David ends by saying, I'm just, uh, I'm just waiting. Just waiting. Three times in this song. He says, I'm waiting on you. My hope is in you. I'm waiting for you to come through. I know that you'll never disappoint me. Let's pray. I want to read for us one of the prayers of John Bailey. And I'd like for us to pray this prayer with him. Almighty God, who of your infinite wisdom has ordained that I should live my life within these narrow bounds of time and circumstance, let me now go forth into the world with a brave and trustful heart. It has pleased you to withhold from me a perfect knowledge. Therefore, do not deny me the grace of faith by which I may lay hold of things unseen. You have given me little power to mold things to my own desire. Therefore, use your power to bring your desires to pass within me. You have willed that through labor and pain I shall walk the upward way. Be then my fellow traveler as I go. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.